the technical skills in the world of today, the technical skills that are required in a specific job, they keep evolving, they keep changing, and the speed of life. You don't go to school anymore to learn technical skills. That's an obsolete way of thinking. Because by the time you finish the university in marketing, in design, in science, the world has evolved so fast and so much. And in the next 10 years and 20 years, things will change over and over again. So what you need to learn is how to learn, how to adapt, how to be flexible. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, and your host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work and want to bring you insights from interesting people with nuggets of knowledge to share. Enjoy. Hi, everybody, and you're very welcome back to The Card Podcast. Our topic today is the human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. And it's the title of Mauro Percini's book. And Mauro is PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer. And he joined the business in 2012. And he's been infusing design thinking into PepsiCo's culture ever since. And I've listened to Mauro's book. And I have listened to his podcasts and been a great fan. And all I can say is he's a force of nature. He's passionate. He's curious. He's Italian who learned to speak English in Dublin when he came here for education. And he's in love with the human beings and believes that they should be at the center of everything we do in the future. And I just love the approach and the thought process behind that. So, Mauro, you're very welcome. And on our podcast, we always ask a question about your younger formative years for you growing up in Italy. And maybe a little bit about your key influences and values you believe that shaped who you are today. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. And I love the first question because even when nobody asked me about this, I find a way to squeeze in that kind of topic because it's been so important for me. The values that I learned when I was a kid, they came from my parents. And there are a few different ones, you know, but to summarize, first of all, this idea that we needed to be good people in the world, the idea of kindness, of being a decent person, you know, they were embodying that as people and they wanted their kids, me and my brother, to embody that. And there was literally a mantra, something that every day we will practice. The second thing was this idea and this celebration of culture of knowledge, of learning, of knowing things. The number one dream was for me to become a priest, connected to those values of being a good person. For them, you know, those values were translated in the Catholic religion, but they're really universal values. The second dream that they had for me was to become a professor in university. If I didn't become a priest, at least, at least, please, a professor in university, because it was one of those professions where you really spend your life celebrating culture, learning and growing, you know, your knowledge. And then another thing that they told me without ever talking about this is this extreme passion for what they were doing. And by the way, in their specific case was not their job. My mom was working in finance and she didn't like it at all. My father was an architect, but the business was, you know, not really doing good. And he was teaching 
technical drawing in high school in Italy, but both of them had passion. They were different from their jobs. My mom loved writing and the world of philosophy and literature, and she would write every day. And I remember her as a child writing every day. And still today, I'm going to be 48 in a few weeks. She still writes every day in her late 70s. My father was all about painting. He would paint and sketch and do something every single day. And still in his 80s, he does this all the time. I gave it, I took it for granted back then. I realized many years later, many years later, that actually what they were doing was special. They inspired me from a creative standpoint, but the real lesson is that they inspire me to go after what I love. No matter, you know, I'm lucky because I found that in my job. But even if you don't find it in your job, go after something that you love, because this is so important in our life, you know, in the journey towards happiness that is our life. That's really interesting. You're after bringing up two things for me. My mother wanted to be a priest as well. Maybe it's our Irish and Italian Catholic upbringing. And my dad used to love to write and wrote a diary. He had beautiful handwriting and I used to admire it. Every day he wrote a full A4 of what happened that day. And it brings me to what I do in my life now and writing. And it's interesting how you were influenced by that at such a young age and you don't really know what it is at the time. And I suppose for young people growing up today, you talk a lot about people finding and following their passion. And that can be great when you hear somebody who's made it in business and in life and they say at a speech, oh, my God, you should find and follow your passion. But you also got to make an income and a living from that. So there's always that tension between finding and following your passion and also making a living. And then with the education system, which really doesn't educate you to do that at all. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I love this question as well, because when I talk about passion and loving what you do, a lot of people, first of all, think, well, he has such a clarity of thinking. He probably had it already when he was a teenager. He understood that he loved design and art and, and he just went for it. It's not really true. You know, I had multiple passions as a teenager. I loved writing. I wanted to be an author. I loved art. I loved design. I loved architecture. I loved playing soccer. I wanted to be a professional soccer player. I wanted to be so many different things and I had no clue what I was going to study. And I was coming from a humble family, middle class, but really, you know, struggling to arrive at the end of the month, you know, always controlling what you were spending. If my mom would would buy an ice cream for me, she wouldn't buy it for herself. Just to give you the idea, coming from the house projects of a difficult neighborhood of my town. So that kind of situation. The fact that I could study in university was already a major achievement and a big sacrifice for my parents and possible because university in Italy is mostly public. And so obviously after I graduated, I needed to find a job. And this is the reason why I didn't study literature because it would have been more difficult to find a job in Italy at that time studying literature. By the way, I wanted to be an author. Impossible <laughs> to earn a living just as an author. And then the other dream that I had was to be an artist. But the same, you know, to be an artist and earn an income that supports you right away for sure is the reason why, you know, we see today in the United States many minorities that a very difficulty, major difficulty to get access to education. Once they do that, they choose marketing or law, medicine, because they know that there is a real income. You know, they had that 
unique possibility to get access to that. They want a real income. And it's the reason why in our design world, there is such a lack of diversity for specific kind of ethnic groups because they see design in the bucket of art as a profession where it's not that easy to earn an income. And by the way, in the case of design, it's not really true. So long story short, my decision of studying design was mostly practical, but there was also the component of there must be something that I may love, but I had no clue what design was. But I was like, okay, design, industrial design, there is the possibility to find a job. It was a new faculty back then in Italy. They were just opening, but there was this word design that somehow connected me back to art and creativity and everything. Once I started university, I realized that was my dream job, something that I always wanted to do. I didn't know there was an education for that. So I was lucky. But let's say that people listening to us are not lucky right away when they study in university or they're not lucky when they find their job. I think the first thing we need to do is to understand if we're happy doing what we're doing or not. And have the courage, if we realize that we're not happy, first of all, to try to change the situation within the context we are in. So is it possible in working for a company to change the way my job description, the way they perceive me, you know, to find a different path within the company? For instance, when I joined 3M, if I was just doing what they were asking me to do, I would have been miserable. I built my own job description by doing things that they didn't expect. Now, there are lucky people that can, you know, find a way to do it. Sometimes you don't. Well, if you don't have the courage to change, to leave, to go and try something else. Now, it's possible you do that. And even after that, still, you don't find your way. Well, then at the end of the day, you're right. We need to be also practical. There are some situations, many out there are people that need a job to arrive to the end of the month. But is there anything else you can do in life beyond your job that can make you happy? My mom and my dad have been living examples of the fact that that's possible. And so that could be another path for the people that unfortunately cannot find it in their job. But the first step is try to find it in your job. And when we look at the different lenses, then you make such great point about that. When I heard you speak about your changing from 3M to Pepsi, you said, I knew how to feel, but I didn't have any industry knowledge. And that was a really interesting point for me because we recruit people here. We've got a recruitment division. And I often hear our recruiters speaking to hiring managers and they want the perfect fit. They want the person who's a carbon copy of the talent that's just left. How do we educate people to make those decisions, but also to explore other attributes of the person rather than just the industry knowledge? And how brave was that to move from 3M to Pepsi, a very different industry to move there? Look, first of all, I think when we hire, the first thing we need to look at is a series of soft skills. I talk about the soft skills in the book that I wrote, 24 different characteristics that define these unicorns, from curiosity to optimism, kindness, ability to think big combined with the ability to execute, resilience. You know, there are many different kinds. But why I'm saying this and why today this is important more than 20, 30, 40 years ago, because the technical skills in the world of today the technical skills that are required in a specific job, they keep evolving, they keep changing, and the speed of life. You don't go to school anymore 
to learn technical skills. That's an obsolete way of thinking. Because by the time you finish that university in marketing, in design, in science, the world has evolved so fast and so much. And in the next 10 years and 20 years, things will change over and over again. So what you need to learn is how to learn, how to adapt, how to be flexible. That's why, and this is not the case. It was not the case 30, 40 years ago. You know, even back then, people that are agile and flexible and adaptable were, you know, the first choice, I'm sure. But you will learn something that you will carry with you for a big chunk of your life, your professional life. Today, you need to keep changing and evolving. So soft skills first. Then I really value experience, both in terms of years of experience for specific kind of positions. So the way I think my level of awareness today at 48 is much bigger than when I was 38 and when I was 28. And I'm sure I know a fraction of what I will know when I will be 58, 68, or 78. So I'm very full aware of this. So years of experience. And then the experience in a specific technical field that I think is very important. So if you work in food and beverage, understanding the industry, I think is extremely important. But this is the thinking that you need to have as a CEO or hiring manager. But if you find the right person that eventually bring a fresh perspective, the right soft skills and a fresh perspective to your industry, what you need to do is just to rebalance the gap of technical skills or understanding of the industry with the team. So I came in knowing nothing of food and beverage beyond the fact that I love to eat and drink, <laughs> especially as an Italian. But it was the only industry, I mean, between 3M, Philips, I touched so many industries but never food and beverage. So I come in without those technical skills, but I surrounded myself within the design organization and outside of the design organization with people that knew perfectly the industry. And that's where you need a very important soft skill, curiosity, respect, respect for people that are different than you, that think different, you know, lack of arrogance so that you can learn, so that you can absorb, in the book, I talk about, you know, the very first months, what I thought were great idea about how to change that industry, or I, there was a specific project that I talk about. But I also had the humbleness of understanding that I had a gap. You know, I didn't know that industry or not. So I started to talk with people, study, rely on their knowledge, but also challenging them, but understanding what is the right timing for challenging them, eventually not right away at the beginning, because I knew that I may challenge them in a naive way in areas that I didn't have the right knowledge on. And then later on, the more I was learning, the more I was confident in challenging them, but always with respect, always through dialogue, always trying to understand how to combine my perspective with their perspective, not to impose my perspective, not to get their perspective, but with the goal of building a new perspective, the innovative perspective, the blending of mine plus theirs to build a new one. And this is the preciousness, the precious gift of diversity of thinking within these teams. When you have people with different kinds of backgrounds that connect with each other through respectful dialogue, magic can happen because you blend this perspective and you build new ones that are the foundation of innovation. As you speak there, you've talked about the unicorn characteristics of which there are 23, I think you said, in the book. But it's almost like when you're onboarding into an organization, there are other characteristics as well that you need from both the people who are joining the new people 
and that first three months, six months, nine months to ensure that, you know, there's a sense of understanding of both sides, that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to challenge the norms rather than we tried that before. Have you any particular disciplines or how you manage that transition? Because a lot of people are trying to hire new talent into organizations. Look, it's going to be the topic of another book that is partially already written, but about, I mean, exactly this, what happened when you join a new organization, you try to be the new capability. First of all, as an organization, embracing new talent and new people, you need to be ready to be challenged. You need to be ready to embrace a different perspective. You need to be ready not to dismiss that perspective, even when it sounds naive. As a talent joining an organization, you need to be, as I said earlier, humble enough to respect that organization. As an example, you know, as designers, often we criticize as a community, we criticize these big corporations working in mass market. And in the past years, it happened to me many years ago, but then I saw also very famous, renowned designers going through that process. They started to realize that actually there was a lot to respect these companies for. I mean, companies are able to build businesses of billions of dollars and run them and grow at the speed and creating so much love for certain brands. They probably do something right, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds obvious, but there was this arrogance of the design community. You know, it's very important to understand how to establish the right relation. But then the best thing to do is to roll up your sleeves find what I call the co-conspirators in these organizations, people that are sharing the same kind of dreams and ambitions, they want to change the game, that are looking for people with fresh perspective to do that. And those people, again, that I call co-conspirators, often are people that are there in the company that bring in the know-how and the knowledge and the understanding of the industry and the culture of the company and the business model and the processes of that organization. and in partnership with you through, once again, the respectful dialogue can really change the game. Now, these people are very rare in these companies for a simple reason, because is part of human nature, this reluctance to change. The most, I mean, statistics say that in average, 90% of the people, nine people out of 10, are not going to be ready to drive any change. They love the comfort zone of the status quo because it gives them safety. Is at the base of the Maslow pyramid. Is survival is that kind of safety. It, it, it reflects also in the way we work, in the way we behave within this organization. So you will find one person out of ten that has, that is an anomaly. There is something wrong with these people. I, I'm one of those. There is something that doesn't work with these people, and you need them to prototype that change. Until you start to prototype the change and you build proof points and you show that actually a change makes sense for the company, nobody will really believe you. You can talk as eloquently as you want. You can have an amazing success story. You can do whatever you want. But the moment you enter that organization, you're like anybody else. You're not a genius consultant anymore. You're one of them. And so at that point, yes, your resume is great, but who cares? And you can talk and fascinate and inspire. But that lasts a few months. If you don't start to deliver, especially the American companies are like driven by results, you're not going to last. So find co-conspirators, merge perspectives, roll up your sleeves, and start to build 
proof points, prototypes of your ideas, and then things start to, you know, evolve. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge. The overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. You mentioned their, you know, organizations did great jobs of bringing people in and they fell in love with the organizations and they did a great job. And we do a lot of work in restructuring when there are separations and people are leaving. And quite often there's, you know, there's obviously so much fear of maybe 20 years service in an organization and you have to leave this big corporate. And it's only a year, two years, three years later when people transition and make the change that they actually say, God, you know, I was too comfortable. I needed to disrupt my thinking. And that is something that I see time and time again, but we don't welcome that change. And I suppose with that change, then we're seeing so much change in the workplace, digitization. We've seen the COVID years. You know, where are you seeing the changes across industry sectors? There's industry convergence. Where are you seeing that change? And what impact is that having on human beings as you see it? Uh, When you talk about change, you talk about change in the way we work or change in society, in the way we produce new products, brands, innovation. In the organization that you work with and also in society as a whole, because we're obviously working within our own frameworks. Yeah, look, first of all, we live in constant change. So the only thing that doesn't change is change. (laughs) And so we need to get used to it. You know, for a few years, we're like, oh my God, you know, this is really uncomfortable. And but sooner or later we'll finish. It's not going to end. It's just here to stay. Simply because, once again, things move at the speed of light and between globalization, but mostly technology advancement and social progress, I would say, the way we work is evolving and is changing. Now, for one second, let's forget what is important to these companies, what is important for the organizations we work for. And let's think about the human beings. We started this podcast, you were mentioning how much I love people. And every time I try to elevate myself outside of, you know, the moment and and what we take for granted and the way we live and we work, and I try to understand what are the root cause and the primary drivers of everything we do. This comes from my passion for philosophy. This is what philosophers have been doing all their life, right? Asking why, 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 until you arrive to the primary cause and the primary driver. So thinking about work, why do we work? We work because thousands of years ago, in the prehistoric time, we started for the first time to do what we call today innovation or design. We started to modify what was available in nature. The first thing we did, we scratched two stones with each other and we created a tool, a tool to hunt, a tool to prepare our food, later on a tool to decorate our body, define our identity, later on a tool to decorate our case and then to celebrate our gods. Essentially, a tool to work on all the needs of the Maslow pyramid, from safety, survival, all the way to self-identity, self-expression, connection with others, all the way to purpose and transcendence and something bigger than you. Tools that we were building to go after our happiness. Because if you fulfill all those needs, you reach your happiness. That's the ultimate goal. So beyond the 
primary instinct that is the reproduction instinct, as human beings, the order overlapping, overlapping instinct is to go after our happiness. So this is why we started to create stuff. At a certain point, we realized that by ourselves, you know, me building tools, there were too many tools to build. I needed to ask my friends in my community to help me. So you do something, I do something, we exchange them. Later on, it became too much. So we needed to invent something different to exchange these things. We invented the idea of currency, the idea of work, later on the idea of companies, brands, so on and so forth. And we forgot the reason why we're doing all of this. We're doing all of this as an act of love towards ourselves and the people close to us. I was creating something because I care about me and my close family and friends and community. And I was helping them and helping myself towards this goal that is called happiness. Once we started to build these companies, this organization, and now fast forward to today, we started to confuse the creation of human value and therefore happiness with the creation of financial value. And so we started to create situations in which instead of thinking, well, we work because we have a goal that is to help each other, we started to work because the goal is to create financial wealth. Now, not financial wealth for everybody. Financial wealth, the more you are productive, the more goes towards few people in the world, in society. So if you think about how productive companies were 100 years ago and how productive they are today, the exponential growth in productivity went all in the hands of few people at the top. While, in my modest opinion, should have gone in the hands of all the people producing so that you can take back that time and invest that time in other things that are important for your happiness, for the happiness of your family, of your community, and at the end of society. An hobby, something that you love, giving back through charity work, all kinds of things. This is not about laziness. This is about really working on happiness of society instead of producing more and more and more and more, and that surplus goes in the hands of few. Now, why I'm saying this, you know, in this specific moment, because I think this is a wonderful moment in our lives. The experimentation with flexible work. Now I'm going to try to answer your question. Flexible working. Now, by the way, these companies were already experimenting before COVID. The idea of the four days a week. Or if I see an American corporation has been, you know, a practice in many companies for a long time, the Friday afternoon off in the summer. In PepsiCo, we have also in December before Christmas. I mean, certain practices that slowly are going in the direction of giving back to people, what we call work-life balance. So once again, if we level the competitive landscape, if every company of the world has people that work in a flexible way, they work the right amount of time, then you don't put one company at disadvantage versus the other. Already today, we're doing this. We arbitrarily decided that Saturday and Sunday in the Western society or in many other countries around the world, we don't work. So we can arbitrarily decide that there is another day that we give back to people eventually and or there is another form of flexibility. So again, when we talk about these kind of things, we should stop thinking about companies and revenues and we should think about people and society the world, what is important, what these companies need to do is to advance innovation, progress, social progress, technological progress. If you work four days or five days, 
nothing's going to change. If you give flexibility to people, nothing's going to change as far as the competitive scenario is level, as far as one company is not a disadvantage compared to another one for certain policies that favor people and human beings. Thanks for the answer, Mauro. When you were speaking there, I thought about trust and the breakdown of trust in institutions and organizations. And that's why I think we're at the cusp of this huge change in society. And it was reflected back to me by my daughter when she was very young and she was looking at the TV pre-Christmas and she would look at something advertised and then we would order it and it wasn't what it showed on the TV advertising. And she said to me, they're telling me lies again, Daddy, aren't they? And it just brings me to the human-centered innovation that you're involved in and designing for creating extraordinary solutions for the end user being human beings. And obviously, I've seen the product launch for Pepsi and this image of this beating can and the heart in it. Can you bring us to how you went about that project, the design of it, and how you ended up with the end product? Yeah. Look, it's been really a human-centered kind of process, walking the talk, as we say in English. Um, first of all, it all started with understanding there was something that was not really working in the previous visual identity system. It was designed in 2008. I joined the company in 2012. And the world was not embracing that design. So we had a new design in some countries and in some other countries, from China to Russia to the Middle East, some countries in Latin America, they still had the old design. So there was pushback. The reason was that somehow the design was a little bit recessive on shelf and it was not communicating the energy of Pepsi. Pepsi is the timely brand, is the carpe diem brand, is the brand of, you know, enjoying the moment. And the can was very minimalist and sophisticated. It was inspired by the, you know, this new Apple kind of aesthetic that, by the way, I personally love, but it was that time, right? And so when I joined the company, I couldn't change the design again. It was not me, it was not a company that wanted to do something like this. The only thing we did, we modified the visual identity. So the blue was very dark and we made a blue, we changed the blue and we made it much more brilliant. The logo on the can was very small. The globe was small with a Pepsi watermark in vertical. We made the globe much bigger and we moved Pepsi horizontally under the globe. And then we did a few other things, but essentially we're trying to reignite energy in the brand. Once we had the new visual identity system, we started to also do a lot of limited edition packaging and a lot of uh, different design projects to again, pushing energy, pump energy in all the time, because that's what Pepsi is about, with a lot of colors and everything. But again, we knew that sooner or later, when the time was right, we needed to do something different. I'm mentioning all of this for one reason. This redesign that we're launching in the year 2023, at the end of 2023, we started to think about that, essentially when I joined the company in 2012. Having a team in house give you that kind of opportunity because it's not PepsiCo going at a certain point to an agency and telling the agency there is a brief, you have a starting moment, you have a deadline, deliver. This is a team that breathe the brand every day, they eat and drink the brand every day, they understand the culture of the company, the complexity of the company, the complexity from a manufacturing standpoint, from a, again, a culture standpoint, from a business model standpoint understand trends, 
people. Talking about people, we started conversations back then with people, you know, part of other projects, but we will talk with people all the time. And in many of these conversations, we would ask people to draw the logo Pepsi without showing them the can or the bottle. Just remember the logo, draw it. And many people will draw the logo with the globe and the watermark inside the globe. That, by the way, was a sort of iteration that we had in the 60s and the 70s. Even people that were not even born in those years. So we're like, oh my God, I mean, there is so much power in something where there is a circle, a globe with a watermark inside. So at a certain point, instead of ignoring that inside, we decided to embrace it. And so when we started experimentation in, in 17 and 18 and 19 on what could be the future logo Pepsi, we started to work a lot with this idea of the globe with Pepsi inside, like we did in the 70s and 80s. And so long story short, by doing this over and over again, and then we started to also ask agencies to come up with ideas over the years, and many of them were gravitating towards that. And then I started, you know, I had the can in front of me, like I have still today. The first prototype landed in my desk two years and a half ago, something like this. And in meetings with the internal organization, I would start to share the can at the end of a meeting. You know, the meeting was about something else. And I would be like, what do you think of this versus other concepts that I had on my desk? And the most of the people love this iteration. And then I started to do it with my close friends from the design world, from other kinds of worlds. Long story short, I started to build myself inner confidence that that design was the right one. It was a design that was starting from listening to people, caring about what they were telling us, screaming to us, without even saying, they would never tell us, you need to use the logo. It was through observation that we understood that we needed to do that. But they didn't tell us, do that. And this is important, because often companies do consumer research, and they listen to what people tell them. Instead, you need to be at another, for an anthropologist, you need to observe people. I usually say there is a slide that I share in presentations around the world. I've been sharing this for 20 years. And is the slide that people like the most, repost the most, essentially is a picture, is a cartoon, where there is a prehistoric man that goes in front of three other prehistoric men. Well, lack of diversity, there's no women in, uh, in the specific cartoon. He goes with uh, his wheel made of stone. He invented the wheel. He goes to the consumer research people and they're there. They look at him and they have a square wheel. It's not a wheel anymore. It's a square with a hole inside. And they answer, we love your original concept, but just to, to, to be on the safer side, we passed it through a focus group. And, and this is exactly what happened in these companies so many times. You have something that is really powerful. Then you talk to people, but you talk to them in the wrong way. You just listen to what they tell you. You let them design for you. And so you start to tweak that original idea. By tweaking it, you think you're just tweaking it, but you're killing the integrity of the idea. In the case of the wheel, you think, well, you know, prehistoric man innovator, I helped you. I listened to the consumers. I made the wheel a square because it was safer. Consumers were not familiar with a new shape. You know, we needed to add familiarity to the design, 
the amount of material is the same, the cost is the same, there is still a hole in the middle. They're essentially the same thing, but we made it better so that it's more acceptable to our consumers. Instead, we kill the, integra the, the original idea. One of the risks of this design, you know, a lot of people, including myself, was, you know, is it too connected to the past? Are they people, you know, going to tell us that it's too connected to the past? But in reality, we knew that it was not because there was so much that was different. You know, is the typography, is everything that happened around the logo. I mean, it was clearly different. But I had in my guts that concern. Are people going, you know, to push back on it? And so at a certain point, that's why I mentioned this idea of talking and talking to people, talking to people, showing things and do it over time. Because the more feedback you get, the more human-centered you are, the more you listen to them, the more you build that confidence that as a company, as a leader, helps you taking difficult decisions. Because to go with this design was not an easy decision at all. And, you know, just to share a personal story, I can do thousands of good projects as a designer. But if I screw up the lunch of Pepsi, I will be remembered for the rest of my life for that and just for that. So it was not an easy one to, you know, to decide on. And my anchor, my strength is being the people out there, listening to them, caring about them, caring about what they were telling me. You mentioned at the start of that, embrace the inside and we've been ignoring the outside. And I think that's a, a really interesting point around where we are in the world right now, that we've been all of these voices on the outside where we haven't been embracing our own hearts, our own sense of purpose and, and our own why, because we're afraid to put our voice there out into the world. And especially in a world of cancel culture, and I meet a lot of leaders who are afraid to voice their opinion. So, you know, that experimental mindset, you know, even yourself saying, if I mess up, I'm going to mess up big here. That can be a real challenge for leaders in having that experimental mindset and trusting people to experiment in their organizations, especially when there's so much disruption going on. Have you seen anything on that or what's your thoughts on that? Look, I think, as I said earlier, that to change and to embrace change is something that is not part of our human nature. So the idea of experimenting, the idea of taking the risk of experimentation is totally against our human nature. The paradox though, and this is really a natural paradox, is that nature doesn't really care about you individual changing. You know, the inertia of the system is such that, you know, the system goes on, but if you don't change, you disappear and something else appear in your place. This is what the inertia of the system is about. So we keep changing and adapting, but for nature, the world will go on with us or without us. You know, we talk about we're killing the planet. We're not killing anything. We're killing ourselves, you know, <laughs> because the world will go on. Human species is a glitch in the history of the world. Well, I don't remember exactly, but if the history of the world was 24 hours, it would be a split of a second. I don't remember exactly. But I'm saying this because now go back to our organizations, our corporations. If we don't change, these organizations will find ways to have somebody that embrace that change and they drive the change of organization. If they don't, 
the organization we deserve, the brand, the company. We saw this happening in the past years. There are many brands that were part of our youth that are not, nowhere to be seen, that, that disappeared. But still, the world goes on. You know, you still watch television, you listen to music, but the players are different. And so, again, we need to understand as leaders, as professionals, how to go against our nature, try to embrace change, but do it, I talk extensively about this in the book, do it with a safety net. Do it not in a wild way. Nobody needs wild change and innovation for the sake of change and innovation. You don't need it as a professional and as a human being. Your company doesn't need it and society doesn't need it. It's change driven by strategy, driven by empathy, driven by a series of things that you do to protect yourself and your organization from failure. And by the way, this is where design thinking can really help. Because design thinking defines three lenses, three filters that you want to use every time you drive product innovation, but this applies to innovation in your life, in your way of working, in anything you do, including your private life. The three lenses are focus on the desirability of what you're doing, desirability for the people you serve through your products and brands, desirability for yourself in your job, desirability for what you do for your company. So first dimension is do something that people want, that people desire, and that you yourself desire. The second dimension is the lens of viability. Does it make sense from a business standpoint? Could be a product, but could be also my career. You know, what I'm doing makes sense for my company. Am I valuable from a financial and business standpoint for my company? The third dimension is what we call feasibility. So, and in a product, it's obvious, you know, do I have the right manufacturing capability and technologies to make it happen? But in my work, do I have the right resources, the right design of the organization, the right working environment, the right anything, you know, all the infrastructure to make that thing that eventually could be desirable for the company, for society, for the industry, for the business, happen, to make it happen. So these three lenses are so powerful because essentially they force you in anything you do, by the way, this in, including also your private life, to consider in parallel different dimensions that often are isolated and you don't consider altogether. They're all important. I think every child going to school should listen to you, Mauro. You come across so passionate and there's so much wisdom in what you say. One last question. I have a line in my book, Future Proof Your Career, which is disrupt yourself before you're disrupted. How are you disrupting yourself today? Look, first of all, you know, I'm 48. I'm the chief design officer of PepsiCo. Now I even launched Pepsi that went very well. I could be just sitting comfortable in my chair, you know, with a big machine that keeps going. And it's totally not my nature, simply because I get bored and I get unhappy if I get bored. So there is always something going on. First of all, in our industry, that means working on the full potential of what we could do in the world of sustainability, health and wellness, personalization, and the role of technology as an enabler of changes in these three dimensions. So that's something that I apply proactively in new projects that we identify across the board within the company. Then another example I think is pretty powerful, you know, right now, this advancement of artificial intelligence and a lot of pushback 
from a variety of different professional communities, including the design community, the art community, pushing back on intellectual property, ownership of ideas and everything. My approach is completely different. I am so excited by the potential of a new technology for human beings. And so we started right away last year projects to really understand how designers can embrace that technology to do amazing things. So instead of, as it was happening early on, now, you know, then we time these things fade away, but as it was happening early on and there's still this resistance, instead of saying, oh my God, as a designer, we're gonna lose our jobs. Thinking, what can we do with these new technologies to take our jobs to the next level? Now, as a chief design officer, there are also other implications. It means that I need also to add new skills in my team. For instance, the idea of a prompt designer to feed the right prompts to the AI engine is something obviously we never considered five years ago. So right now, to write those prompts in the right way, to have the right skills and experience to do that, well, you need people that are able to do that. Or another conversation I was having recently with my team is the skill that you need to interpret what is the right thing that the AI is generating, what do you need to modify, what do you need to, what can you take to market, what doesn't make any sense. So there is a strategic thinking and intellectual filtering that requires, you know, specific skill. So yeah, you can have an engine that produces amazing things. And so maybe I need a little bit less graphic designers because a lot of those things are generated by the engine. I still need graphic designers anyway, or industrial designers, because whatever the engine produce, we need to modify. But in the mix, maybe I need also strategies that understand how to use those specific output in a different way, or I need the same graphic designer, industrial designer to develop a new muscle that is the critical understanding of things that are generated by the machine. So this is another example of embracing change with full enthusiasm and being like, you know, I told my team, I want to be one of those design teams around the world that leads the way in AI. I don't want here be rejecting it. I want to lead it. I want to really, you know, do amazing things with that. Yeah. And, you know, it goes back to your earlier point about we're only a speck in relation to the overall existence of the world in our, you know, less than 100 years that we're going to be around. So we've got to make a dent in the universe, as I heard someone describe it recently. You're definitely making a dent in the universe, Mauro. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. You are a force in nature. You are passionate about what you do. And it's fantastic as a guest that when I ask you a question, you're so descriptive and bring every one of your answers to life. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Mauro. Thank you for having me, really. It was been a wonderful conversation. Love the questions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon. 